Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. At the early age of four years old, Chris Dupre became the target of a man who was wounded, abused, and seemingly oppressed. This man was a war hero, a highly regarded and beloved teacher by faculty and students. But to the small boy who called this man dad, well, he was a different man. This is a story of forgiveness. My first lesson in physics, force, velocity, speed, is it came when I was four years old. Um, when your dad hits you with a certain degree of force, you end up on the floor really hard. My dad was a World War II vet, ended up on a B-17 as a bombardier. He was shot down over Germany on his 13th mission, landed on a rock and broke his leg in nine places. Ended up with a French underground. The French underground didn't have the medication, so they had to give him to the Nazis. They, they did put a cast on him, they gave him medication, but he was abused of all 1945 until actually General Patton liberated his camp. He was known as Nice Guy Dave before then. He came out of the war two very different people. Went to college, got his teaching degree. I would walk by as a little kid and look through the window and see the kids laughing and him sitting at his desk teaching the class and, and it looked like he was having a wonderful time. But then I knew that same man would drive in the driveway. I'd hear the car door slam and then I knew I was in trouble for something I hadn't even done. I became the brunt of, of his anger and abuse that he could not show in school. We're living with my grandmother and I'm in the kitchen being disciplined and I'm literally flying across the kitchen, hit the wall just as my mom came back in from shopping. And it was at that point she said, okay, she finally saw something happen. And she took the three kids away, we moved an hour away. Life became very different, it was a, it was a loving home. She takes my hand and leads me in one of the most simple, beautiful sinner's prayer. And I just prayed and I agreed with everything she said. Then one day the Lord just said to me, I want you to forgive your father. And I said, well, Lord, I'm really trying. He said, no, face to face. And that's when it got, that's when it got really real. Uh, I, I, it was July 4th, 1982. So I walked over to my dad and, and I go, um, Dad, I just wanted to tell you that I love you and I forgive you for everything that ever happened. And he said nothing. But I put my arm around my dad and I just touched his shoulder. The second I touched his shoulder, he began to weep and he began to bend over, weeping and weeping. He takes his left hand and puts it around my waist to hold himself up. The second he touched my waist, I began to weep. And then I just turned and I put my arms around him and I hugged him. And then we walked, I walked away. And we never talked about that moment. But that night when I went to go say goodnight, no longer did I just shake his hand. I, I didn't even think about it. It was came, came time to say goodbye and I reached over and, and I just gave him this big bear hug. And he goes, whoa, whoa, that's different. He goes, wait a minute, come here, come here. So he, I bear hug him again and he hugs me and he goes, let's do this. Let's, let, let's do this every time.
the doctor, the attending you know, physician, the resident, the anesthesiologist, they're all surrounding the, uh, his, his little uh, uh, bed. I just kind of lean over, grab his hand like this, and I go, love you, Dad. He looks at me and goes, we don't do this. And he just grabs my face and starts kissing me in front of the doctors. He turns my head and he goes, this is my son. Looks at the doctor and goes, he's great and I love him. And he puts me down. They take the stretcher and they start to wheel him away. And my father yells out, stop, I can't see my son. Turn the stretcher around. So they, they turn the stretcher around. The girl is pulling him back and he's blowing kisses. My eyes start to fill up with tears. So I blow him kisses, he blows me kisses, and he takes his finger like this and begins to kiss his finger and then kisses the other one and then starts shooting. They pull him in the, in the elevator and the door starts to close and I, I watch my dad lean with the door as the door is leaning. He leans over the edge. He kisses his thumb and puts it up like this as he winks at me as the door closes. And so we went to wait. And uh, they called, it's an hour procedure, and a little over an hour later they called us and we went. And the doctor came in with the anesthesiologist, which I didn't know why. And uh, he just said, I, I am very sorry to tell you um, that Mr. Dupre died on the table. In the middle of crying myself, all I could tell, every time I closed my eyes, I saw him kissing me. Every time I closed my eyes, I saw him holding my head and pointing at my face. I'm so proud of him. And that image has never left me. Every day I am convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that is, that's how my papa sees me. Not just my earthly father, my, my heavenly father. He smiles, he points at me. He turns to Michael the Arcade, that's my boy. I love this kid, I love him. I know that, that my God is, is, he's crazy about me. I'm his boy, uh, I'm his loved one and I don't have to do anything to prove it. My life is not a life of proving something. It's a life of living out of peace because I'm already loved. And thanks to Jesse for bringing us that peace. And thanks to Chris Dupre and, well, his heart. And forgiveness is something we talk about a lot here on this show. And what a gift the son gave the father. And by the way, Chris Dupre's son, if he has one, He's learning a lot watching his own father forgive his father. And we learn a lot by what we see and what we see our parents do. So if you're listening and there's someone you haven't forgiven, get to it. Get to it. Gandhi once said, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. And Martin Luther King said this, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. This is our American story, a story of forgiveness, a great father-son story, Chris Dupre's story here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and it's time for one of our favorite regular features of one of our favorite people. It's the burning question from the Wall Street Journal, and of course, it's Heidi Mitchell. And her latest question, why do some people have inescapable foot odor, and thus the music... And Heidi, by the way, has just recently moved to Chicago. And, of course, because of her move, move, the Cubs decided to win a World Series in her honor. Welcome, Heidi. That's what we're telling people. That's what you should. Stick with that story all the way. (laughs) Hey, look, uh, before we get into the foot odor, and this is just such a good story because I grew up with two brothers, myself, in one room, and we loved playing sports, and we had one little closet, and all we did was play basketball all all day and then stick our, our sneakers in the closet, and one brother had really awful foot odor. The other two, it wasn't so bad. And we just didn't know why his feet stunk and ours didn't. Very strange. But why foot odor? Why did you pick foot odor and not all the other types of body odor uh, that there are? Well, I really hope that my 11-year-old never hears this. I'm sure he'll find it. But it was really, it was inspired by my middle child who has the stinkiest feet. It makes the whole house seem like... It, I don't know. Like you, we've left something somewhere and it's gone. Yeah, like it's a, like a pungent smell. I can't really even describe it. And it's toxic. It fills up the room. So anyway, my other two kids don't smell like that. So I thought about this, and, and you know, we, we we tried cleaning his feet and changing his socks and buying different kinds of socks. And so anyway, when we when I brought it up to to my wonderful editors, they thought that was a great idea and they wanted to know. Inquiring minds want to know. So in the end, it comes from the same kind of personal history. That I had growing up, and by the way, we yep. did everything. And he's that that Were odor sounded. No, no, it wasn't me. It was my brother. I can't say which one. He'd kill me. But he was the cross country runner, and and my goodness, it, he sweated a lot because he ran a lot, and and it was as if something died, not just in the room, but in the house, and it infected yeah. the clothes. Like my clothes smelled. My my I smelled because of his smelly feet. That's how bad yeah. it was. Oh. So, 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 so does your, first of all, do you inherit this? Does your husband have smelly feet, Heidi? You know what? He doesn't. In fact, he's going to kill me, but he doesn't even wear deodorant under his armpits. He doesn't smell at all. Wow. Maybe he's not human and I don't have stinky feet. So, and I can't remember any of my siblings having stinky feet. I think he said his brother did. (laughs) Anyway, so for, I don't know why. Yes, but the podiatrists believe that stinky feet are partly hereditary. Most of them believe that. So, so you know, we're we're. I'm going to blame it on his side of the family, but um, it also because you you find it when you're young. Like that brother maybe doesn't have such stinky feet anymore. So there is evidence to suggest that hormones have a lot to do with how much you know your odor, your body is producing. That this doctor that I spoke to. Um, Jane Anderson, who um, is in Chapel Hill, and she's uh, also an American Pediatric Medical Association spokeswoman, and she she said she definitely sees a lot more kids than adults. And and Jane Anderson, Jane Anderson, by the way, pointed out that there are more than two hundred and fifty thousand sweat glands in each human foot. Yeah, humans want to know bacteria. Oh, you know, yeah, it's gross. uh, It's gross, and and so so. So what happens to your son? I mean, do you treat this? Do you, what do you do to stop this, Heidi? So the, so the first thing, so she said, so you can't really fix it, but you can help dim, you know, diminish it. Like it's, he'll outgrow it, hopefully. But so she said, basically, you want him to, um, to get synthetic 
material that is sweat, what is it, wicking. So as long as, so he's wearing a sock that has, she loves this, um, it's called, it's called um, smart wool. So it's actually, it's, it's, I think, a mix, a blend of merino. Anyway, this, this product, it, it helps your, your wicking of your sweat so that it leaves your body. So what happens is um, your foot is trapped in this shoe. It gets sweaty, right? And your foot, foot's producing this, this bacteria. The bacteria is breaking down, and it's causing this, um, this stinky odor. And if you keep, if the, if the shoe and the sock never dry out, then the bacteria can grow and also mold and stuff like that. Oh, so I know, it's pretty gross. <laughs> so even if you clean your foot and you put it back into the shoe that's not really fully dry or put it back into a sock that keeps that moisture in, it's gonna it's like glue, like stinky glue goes right back onto your foot. So she says that you want to tame this this stink, right? That's the best thing that you can do. So first you want to see if, you know, there's some there's some hormonal issue. Then you want to see if there's like a fungus. So you can get a, a podiatrist and see if you've got like athlete's foot. Something like that might make it worse. Then she she said, and I thought this was interesting, that you should um, you should have two pairs of shoes. Which actually, my my kids don't they don't they really just wear one. Right. Um, anyway, that you want two so that one can dry fully, like for 24 hours, and then you can use the other shoe in during that 24 hour period. And, and that- then you want to use these kind of acrylic socks, wicking socks. So between the socks and the rotation of the shoes, and then there's one more thing, and by the way, this (laughs) periodically worked when we did it, is we would just throw the, we would just take his sneakers away from him, throw them in the washing machine, and I mean pour a half a gallon of Clorox on him and just shoot the, I mean, we'd just kill everything in him. But the problem with the Clorox is it wore away at those old sneakers. I mean, they killed the sneakers too. It's true. I know it's true. Well, we've started with the, the bleach, as she suggested. Too. I bought those little pellets of bleach, and I've been throwing and doing a, a, a wash of just socks, <laughs> um, and then making sure his shoes are super dry. I mean, it's it's really you know. And for him, I think he's he's embarrassed. Um, I shouldn't just talk about my kid. People in general are embarrassed by this smell, right? And so um, she also said, you know, like the breeze can work. And I thought this is going to mask the odor. Um, and she uses this kind of cool paste of mixing uh, baking soda and water. And she puts on the rubber. I can't believe the flip flop would smell, but even a rubber shoe throw up on the inside. Um, she put this kind of paste of baking soda and water. She recommends to, to kind of draw out the bad odor and then start again. Also pointing out that it's really important to wash your feet. <laughs> yeah, that would help. Fully. That would help. <laughs> Don't forget that. Yeah. And by the way, she also mentioned Febreze and, and also, What's this with brewed black tea? I mean, this sounds right, like so, home remedies for stinky feet. Well, what's interesting is that she lives in uh, North Carolina, and she said her client, her her patients, they have kind of an allergy to an aversion to you know using any over the counter stuff or whatever. So she can prescribe something like an antiperspirant for your feet, but her her people in her area prefer holistic approaches. So she found that tea. Um, I think it's the tannic acids in the tea. So you brew really strong black tea for like 30 minutes and then you put it in a bucket or tub or something and you stick your feet in there um, for like a half hour, um, you know, once it's cooled. And that will kind of maintain the, it will kill the bacteria and it will, it will hopefully maintain once you've gotten to a place where your feet are nice and clean and your shoes are dry and your new socks. Um, I've invested a lot in socks, so I can tell you that. I just, Throw them out. Well, I'm, really I'm hoping. I'm hoping for you and him. You know, as my brother grew a little older, he actually did go out of it. But I mean, it wasn't until college, 
And so his dating life, let's just say there was a struggle because his feet were so bad that you could actually smell the feet while the sneakers were on sometimes. I mean, it would just creep, it would just creep out. And it was so bad because he was hygienically sound. He washed himself. He showered. And by the way, that leads me to one last thing because I do think, Heidi, there has to be a companion piece. I was in New York last a few weeks ago. I get into a cab and, the, and, and I just needed the cab because it was raining. And it was raining pretty hard. But I got in that cab, and the body odor of the cab driver was so powerful that I, I told him I needed to go 30 blocks. A block in, I said, oh, I forgot. I need to get off right here. I gave him like 10 bucks just to get out of the cab and go back in the rain. And so what do you do about like body odor itself in general? I think you need a companion piece to, to body odor because foot odor is one thing. But, oh, my goodness, really bad body odor? It's just brutal, Heidi. I'm going to be sick. <laughs> I think that you just, you must not smell it on yourself and think that you're fine, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> Someone has to tell them. You need an intervention. I think so. Intervention. <laughs> I think so. But I would love to know what the causes are of that. I'd love to know whether it's, it's uh, hereditary, whether it's diet, whether it's a combination of those things. I mean, we've learned here that it's mostly younger people that suffer from this foot odor and as folks get older, uh, Heidi, it just tends to go away, correct? That's right. So that's, that's In fact, a- I asked about menopause, if that, because that's a hormone change. If that, and she said she hasn't seen women with menopause come in with stinkier feet. <laughs> that's great. So this is good <laughs> news. Good news for everybody. Stinky feet's been the subject. And <laughs> this could be one of my favorites, Heidi, because it just hits home <laughs> and it's personal. Now I think I understand some things better. The burning question with the Wall Street Journal's Heidi Mitchell. And congratulations on the uh, World Series victory. I think you need to move to another city that hasn't won a championship in a long time, Heidi, and bring a championship to their town, too. Thanks for joining us, as always. (laughs) Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to capture all that we do. This is Our American Stories, and Jesse, I'm not sure what that music is, but it sounds like something off the Shaft or Superfly soundtrack. The Visioneers. Oh, The Visioneers. I love it. I love it. It sounds like something that our, our friend Trenton, uh, Quentin, not Trenton, Quentin Tarantino. It's very California. It is very California. Love it. Recently, we came across an article at the Wall Street Journal about a guy named Kevin who had established his own micronation within the state of Nevada. A micronation is an entity that claims to be an independent nation or state, but is not recognized by world governments or major international organizations. We just had to get to the bottom of this bottom of this story, and there was no one else on the crew who could do a better job than Jesse. I'm just outside of a small town called Dayton, Nevada, just south of Reno. 
to visit with a man named Kevin Ball. Kevin is what you might call a crazy person. You're about to find out why. You see, a long time ago, our friend Kevin here decided it might be a good idea to declare himself the president of Molossia. What is Molossia, you might ask? Well, let's ask His Excellency ourselves. Molossia is a micronation. Basically, it's a a tiny self-declared country. Uh, We sort of see it as a um, expression, a self-expression, creativity, kind of almost like an art project, but not quite. But also, we want to have everything in Molossia that a regular country would have. That's why we have our own post office, phone system, and so forth like that. Um, Molossia was originally founded uh, in 1977. Uh, My friend James and I, uh, we saw a movie called The Mouse That Roared uh, with Peter Sellers, and we were really struck by the imagination and creativity and the idea of that that movie. So we decided we wanted to have our own country, which was called the Grand Republic of Volstein. And he, at that time, and um, he was king. I was prime minister, but then he moved on, went to a different school. But I stayed with it over the years. And then once we obtained this property here uh, in northern Nevada, it was really natural to raise the flag and declare it to be a uh, property of our sovereign nation, Malasia. Now, the Republic of Malasia claims to be a sovereign, independent nation-state completely surrounded by the United States, and as a result, it's adopted a system of government recognizably similar in structure to that of a sovereign state. I don't want an autonomous collective! You're fooling yourself. We're living in a dictatorship! A self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes... Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. Well, that's what it's all about. If only people would Please. Realize... Can someone move to Malasia or apply for citizenship? Well, actually, no. We do not um, allow other people to move in and become, become citizens of Malasia. It's really kind of a family nation, if you will. Uh, we have a lot of people that would like to move here. Um, surprisingly, actually, from the Middle East... It, we have a lot of inquiries, uh, people who want to come here on a regular basis. I, I'll get about a half a dozen a week of folks that want to move here. I think partially because they would like to you know, come into the U.S. They see this as a way to get here. But Malasia is only open to uh, really our current citizens and our family members. Does the United States government care that you've declared yourself a sovereign nation? The U.S. has never really had a problem with Malasia, at least as far as I know. I'm sure they snoop around our website because they tend to do that. But at any rate, they don't really care what we do because we are... Uh, I guess, again, they see it sort of as a, you know, self-expression kind of thing, you know, personal freedom and private property and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. They leave us alone. Uh, We do pay taxes, but we call it foreign aid. So we give foreign aid to the U.S. to uh, help prop them up. And you've seen their roads, so you see they need all the help they can get. Uh, This guy is absolutely nuts, but I thought he seemed rather harmless. That is until he explained to me that he's been at war with East Germany for some time now. Well, the war with East Germany started back in 1983. Uh, it's really back in the midst of times because I don't honestly remember even starting this war. But at the time, I was the prime minister. It was the Grand Republic of Voldstein at that time. And I was the prime minister, and I was also serving with the U.S. Army in Europe back, back in the Cold War days. So every now and again, they would roast us up out of our sleep, and we'd have to jump in our tanks and go you know, stand a, po- a post because it was you know, the time when you had to sort of do that. Uh, November of, of 83, uh, when I was still prime minister, I guess I was rusted out of my sleep one too many times, so I decided to declare war on East Germany. And I have a nice little war certificate hanging up on the wall right there. I think that's it. Anyway, um, then I forgot all about it. And then a few years ago, I was rooting through my records, and I pulled this thing out. I said, well, that's kind of cute. That's neat. And I happened to do a little research and discover that East Germany still exists in the form of a tiny island off the coast of Cuba. It's called Ernst Tailman Island, and it was given by Cuba to East Germany back in 1970-something, three, I think. Uh, Fidel Castro gave it to the to the yeah. East Germany. Um, 
I guess it was sort of a symbolic thing, but essentially it became East German territory. They have a little statue, a statue there on there and so forth, and it was never addressed in the Unification Treaty. So it was sort of like one of those limbo kind of things. Uh, so I guess we're still at war with East Germany, at least that's how we're going with it. Now there's nobody on this island, it's uninhabited, except for marine iguanas. So uh, <laughs> I guess those would be the only existing East Germans out there are marine iguanas. And because we can't go there, because we are still subject, unfortunately, to U.S. You know, restrictions of traveling to Cuba, we can't really you know, engage in peace with the marine iguanas there. And uh, so we will probably be at war with East Germany forever, for as long as at least the embargo goes on. We would like to go there someday. It looks like a really pretty place. Making peace with marine iguanas. I mean, look at this guy. He's dressed up like a war general, strutting around his property like Fidel Castro. And in the middle of all this, he somehow managed to land himself a wife. Or as he calls her, the first lady. I met the first lady uh, through uh, MySpace, which is really not that <laughs> popular anymore, but it was a big thing back a few years ago. And uh, we had both been to the same concert, of all things. And I noticed her, she noticed me kind of thing. And uh, we sort of started communicating that way, and she, I didn't really present myself as kind of like a, it's like a separate thing, it was my civilian me, my non-president me, and then the president me. I didn't really present myself as the president, just as the guy down the road. But, you know, being a smart lady, and she is, uh, she Googled me and figured out <laughs> that I was, in fact, the president of the country, and she liked that. She thought it was a pretty cool idea. So she came into our relationship, and it's been almost five years now, came into our relationship knowing that I was the president of the country and very happy with it. And uh, she's had a good time with it ever since. What are some of like your house rules or laws, I guess you would call them? Uh, like all countries, Malaysia uh, has its own customs uh, standards, and there are certain things that can't be brought into the country. Um, they are rather unique because we are a rather unique country. Uh, no walruses are allowed in the country. Uh, there was a cartoon strip called Bloom County a few years ago, and one of the opening splash things always was a, always a little sign next to a meadow under a tree. And one time it said, no walruses. And my, my uh, number two son and I thought that was pretty funny. So we put that on there. Uh, no catfish can be brought in the country. It's not like we have a problem with catfish here in Malazi. We're in the desert. But they're banned because we were going to be in FHM Magazine a few years ago. And FHM Magazine bumped us for an article about guys that catch catfish with their hands. They're called noodlers. So that's a couple things uh, that you can't bring. No plastic bags, bad for the environment. No incandescent light bulbs, also bad for the environment. Uh, because we are a unique country, we do have our own measurement system. It's called uh, the Cokins measurement system. And the uh, basic element that would probably apply to most folks is called the Norton. And this is a Norton. It's my hand. It's about seven inches long. And uh, if you ever have to measure something, you go somewhere, you can use your hands to measure. It's kind of convenient. But we really did that to be unique. We have our own time zone. Uh, we are 39 minutes ahead of Pacific time or 21 behind mountain, whichever way you want to be, be driving. And we, again, did that to be a little bit different. And just a few months after we adopted our own time zone, uh, President Chavez of Venezuela adopted his own, the late President Chavez, adopted his own time zone off by about 15 minutes or something like that. Now, where do you think he got the idea? Right here. Absolutely. So we kind of do our own thing. We have a good time with Malasia. Now, do you do you always dress like that? I dress like a dictator. Well, I mean, because it's kind of a styling thing to do. But anyway, uh, I wanted to be a little bit different. There are a lot of micronations out there, and almost everybody wants to be a king or a prince or a duke or an emperor or something along that line. And I wasn't really feeling like I was royalty. It wasn't my thing. So wanting to be different, we deliberately uh, adopted this is a dictatorship. Malasi is a dictatorship. Kind of handy when I'm sort of the head of the household anyway. It's a family country. And so uh, and we have, you know, have a good time. It's a, it's a benign, benevolent dictatorship. It's a family country, he says. Kevin Vaugh, one of a kind, the micro-nation of Malasia.
Look them up, pay them a visit. Your family might be a little upset and confused, especially if they're expecting Disneyland and you took them here. But that's the way it goes sometimes. This is Our American Stories. Uh, thank you for that, Jesse. He has his own time zone. We should start that here because I'm always 15 minutes late. I should have my own time zone. And and by the way, was he as was he like a, a just a as crazy off oh, the yeah, air? Pretty much, just he, bad. Exactly what you heard. Bad out there, crazy. Yeah. Nice guy though. Hey, that's what we do here in our American stories. And if you know somebody who's a dictator of his own nation, if you're a dictator of your own nation, call, share your story. If you want to be, this is our American stories, Kevin, the dictator, the head honcho of Malasia. Somewhere in northern Nevada. This is Lee Habib, and we continue our conversation with author Tim Harford, who writes about economics in a way, well, it's just storytelling. And here in Our American Stories, that's what we care about. In his book, 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy is chock full of great stories. And we're going to drill down on just a few. Tim, you've said that 50 inventions in your book were not chosen based on some perfect measure of importance, but instead, these are 50 inventions that most of us just don't give much thought to. But my goodness, they changed everything. One such invention is the limited liability company. Without the LLC modern life would be very different. Talk about that. Yes, and some thinkers believe that they're, they're more important than, say, electricity or the railways or these, these amazing um, physical technologies. And, and the reason being, uh, the limited liability company was very important in allowing companies to raise money. Um, so the, what is essentially true about a limited liability company is that... Um, if um, if you and I say decide we're we're going to um, invest in a company and we, you know we we decide we're going to put ten thousand dollars into a company and try and get it all started, we may lose our ten thousand dollars, but we can't then be pursued for any more money. Like I've put my ten thousand dollars in, you can't get twenty thousand dollars out of me or fifty thousand dollars or a million dollars if the company does something wrong. Yeah, my, my liability is limited to the amount of money I originally put in. And so having this protection for investors made it more attractive for investors to, to put money into companies. It made it easier for companies to raise money because their investors knew there was, there was a limit to their downside. And that in turn was important because it meant that suddenly you could raise money from people who didn't know you. Previously, you would only be able to raise money from very close friends, from family, because their liability would be be unlimited. If you did something stupid with their money, there was no end to the amount of trouble that they could have. So, So limited liability enables companies to go out and raise money from a large number of strangers to saying we've got a great business plan and if you if you give us some money, we will we will invest it wisely and you know you'll make profits. You think about companies such as um, General Electric trying to set up an entire electricity grid, or you think about the railway companies. I mean, how is a railway company supposed to make money? You've got to build an entire railway, and you've got to put the trains on it before you can collect a single dime from any railway passenger. 
clearly you've got to raise a huge amount of money. So the limited liability structure allowed that to be possible. And so you, you could have these huge infrastructure projects, water, uh, railways, electricity. There have been a lot of downsides, of course. A lot of people have been ripped off by limited liability companies. Companies have taken too much risk. Um, people get enthusiastic. They pour too much money in, bubbles. Um, there's a long, long history of people being ripped off. But overall, I think you would say this was a very important step in the creation of, of major uh, multinational companies. They really couldn't exist without limited liability. Indeed. I mean, a capital is the oxygen of innovation. I mean, how do you innovate without capital? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Otherwise, you've just otherwise got very, very small companies or, um, or you have to already be a billionaire to set up something major. That's right. And let's talk about concrete. This was fascinating to me. Uh, why does concrete matter and how did it help develop modern life? Well, it matters because it is ubiquitous. It's probably the substance that we humans use more of than anything else with the exception of water. There's a lot of concrete in the world. Uh, it's a very, very flexible, very versatile building material. Um, from the point of view of an engineer or, or an architect, uh, actually the trouble with concrete is once it's built, there's nothing you can do with it. You can't change it. It's not like bricks. Bricks, you can, you can take down a a brick wall or a brick house and reuse the bricks. But for a structural engineer, for an architect, it's a very, very um, robust, flexible and inexpensive material. And so we pour a lot of it. Concrete bridges, concrete skyscrapers, it's everywhere. Um, there is an amazing fact that I checked three times and then some colleagues of mine at the BBC said they didn't believe. And so they they fact-checked me, and they came back and said, no, you were right all along, Tim. And that fact is that in three years recently, I think it's 2008, 2009, 2010, I forget exactly, but three recent years, China poured more concrete than the United States did in the entire 20th century. It gives you a sense of the, the building boom going on in, in China and how incredibly important this material is. So, I mean, that's why it matters, it's because it's everywhere. Um, where did it come from? We've had concrete for a very long time, probably 10,000 years. It's been discuss, uh, discovered in um, settlements in Turkey, 8, 10, maybe 12,000 years ago. The Romans used a lot of it. The, um, the Parthenon, if you ever have the chance to go to Rome, there's this uh, ancient church. It's nearly 2,000 years old called the Parthenon. It's made of concrete. And if you go in and you look up, it's, it is recognizably concrete. It reminds me a little bit of the Washington, D.C. metro system. It's quite striking. Um, and the, the big leap forward uh, was in the 1800s, uh, a French gardener called Joseph Mernier was trying to make concrete flower pots. And they didn't really work until he realized he could reinforce them with a steel mesh. And there's this amazing thing about the, the steel. The steel and the concrete, as it happens, expand and contract when they get hotter and colder at almost exactly the same rate. And so this is very unusual for two materials. But it means you can put steel reinforcement inside concrete uh, and it won't instantly crack when, when the concrete hit, heats up. It makes the concrete vastly stronger under certain kinds of stress and it means you can make concrete skyscrapers, concrete bridges, uh, which, which would have been impossible. So um, 
it's a remarkable material. We are maybe storing up trouble for ourselves because um, some of those reinforcements are starting to get exposed to the elements. They're starting to rust. That makes the concrete way, way um, weaker. And so you see these dreadful bridge collapses that happen from time to time. That's catching up with us. And uh, it's probably going to catch up with China too. Let's talk about index funds. I, I was uh, stunned to see it here, but then I read the chapter and my goodness, it belongs here, doesn't it? I think so. Paul Samuelson, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics uh, a few decades ago, Paul Samuelson said that the index fund ranks alongside wine, cheese, and the wheel as a, an invention of human history. I mean, that may be um, slightly exaggerating things, but it has saved, the index fund has saved a lot of people a lot of money. And the basic idea of an index fund is you want to invest in the stock market rather than pay some expert to pick stocks for you. Um, for which they will charge you handsomely. Why not just invest in the, the market as a whole? Just say, well, if the market as a whole goes up, I make money. If the market as a whole goes down, I make the money. But I'm not going to worry too much about picking stocks. And perhaps surprisingly, that turns out to be really just as good as paying an expert and cheaper. There's lots and lots of evidence that suggests that um, it's very hard for expert stock pickers to do much better than, than just whatever the market is doing. So this was observed by Paul Samuelson, this Nobel Prize winning economist, and he wrote an, an essay saying um, somebody should invent a kind of fund that just invests in the index. What then happened, this is probably the first time in human history this has ever happened, is somebody paid attention to something that an academic economist said <laughs> and said, you know what, this is a good idea. His name was John Bogle, and um, Bogle had just set up his own um, investment company and um, he was looking for low-cost investment strategies and he came across Samuelson's challenge and he said, well, I'm, I'm going to develop an index fund. And at first he was a laughing stock. Other Wall Street funds criticized him, scorned him, accused him of being a communist, accused him of being unpatriotic because, you know, Americans, Americans aren't willing to settle for the average. They, they want to do better. And initially, nobody invested, nobody showed up. But slowly, 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 uh, his funds got more and more investors and it, it's called Vanguard, well, the company is called Vanguard. It is one of the largest fund managers on the planet. Uh, and this strategy now of just passively investing in the market is hugely popular. And it's all down to, to Bogle and Samuelson. And I, I saw an estimate that something like a trillion dollars, if I remember rightly, something like a trillion dollars of investors' money has been saved that would otherwise have been paid in fees to Wall Street over the last 40 years. And that's winners and losers for sure. They are the winners being the public and the losers being the experts. And I might add, it allows ordinary people to go into the markets and just play the economy over a long period of time without the worry of picking winners and losers themselves. Absolutely. And it's how, how I do it. I mean, I write for the Financial Times. I'm, a, I'm an economist. I have quite a keen interest in markets. But I know enough to know I don't think I can beat the market. So I, I use, as it happens, I'm not paid to endorse them. As it happens, I use Vanguard index funds. They seem as good as any. And um, you know, it's the same performance, but for lower fees. So uh, if a Financial Times columnist and um, professional professional economist is saying 
uh, I can't do better than a passive index fund. I think the same is true of most of the people listening to this program. There may be a few who can do better, but uh, a lot of people would do better just putting their money in the market and uh, crossing their fingers. And you've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. And to hear more of Tim's book and the other stories in this remarkable book, go to ouramericannetwork.org. The stories are just so good. All of these stories about modern invention, modern life, modern business, here on Our American Stories. Six years, Jesse James has led this outlaw band, picking his way on a thoroughbred grade through the trails of this southern land with a gun in his hand. And we're listening to Charlie Daniels singing Riding with Jesse James from the 1980 country music concept album The Legend of Jesse James. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And after a century and a half, Jesse James remains one of the most iconic and romanticized figures in American history. Many people even see Jesse James as a type of Robin Hood or a folk hero, despite his sometimes murderous ways. Although separating fact from fiction can be quite a task, we've brought in America's best storyteller of the Old West. Roger McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Here's McGrath. The great American poet, Carl Sandburg, said... Jesse James is the only American bandit who is classical, who is to this country what Robin Hood or Dick Turpin is to England, whose exploits are so close to the mythical and apocryphal. Well, most biographers of Jesse James would agree with Sandberg's description. They portray James as dashing, courageous, and romantic. And he certainly was all of those things. However, it can also be ruthless, cunning, and deadly. Most of all, though, he was extraordinarily good at what he did, rob banks and trains. For 16 years, Jesse James rode and robbed and went unapprehended. When his end did come, it came not at the hands of a lawman, but at the hands of a traitor in his own gang. Jesse James was born in 1847 in Clay County, at the far western edge of Missouri, an area known as Little Dixie. He is the second son of Robert and Zerelda James. Their older son, Frank James, is born in 1843. The father, Robert James, is a Baptist minister. Here's Civil War historian Harry Jones. Robert James, he's selected by a group of men there who want to go out west to California. And he's the chaplain on this expedition to go out gold mining. Jesse's a very young child at this time, and his father dies in California. Jesse's mother, and now widow, Zerelda James, is a fierce southern woman. She remarries twice after Robert's death and continues to manage her late husband's 300-acre hemp farm and seven slaves. Here's historian David Eisenbach. 
Zerelda, raised both of her sons uh, to not only uh, be for the institution of slavery, but to fight for it and to commit crimes in the name of the cause. Her second marriage lasts no more than a few months before that husband leaves also. Then in 1855, she marries Dr. Reuben Samuel, who spends most of his time farming rather than practicing medicine. He's quiet and reserved. Zerelda is stormy and assertive. It proves a good match, and they have four children together. But life in Missouri in the 1850s is hardly stable. The question of slavery is ripping apart the American frontier. When Jesse is just nine, the Kansas-Missouri border war erupts. During the five years of bloody war that follow, everybody on the border is forced to take sides. In 1854, the institution of slavery is being challenged in the nation's capital. The Nebraska Territory on Missouri's border is ready to become a state. Democratic Senator Stephen Douglas believes that the majority of citizens in a territory should decide the issue of slavery for themselves. Douglas proposes splitting the territory into Kansas and Nebraska and have the residents in each area vote for a slave state or a free state. The Kansas-Nebraska Act leaves the decision on whether a new territory would be slave or free to the voters. This bill will triumph. It will impart peace to the country and stability to the Union. No opposition to this act leads to the formation of the Republican Party and its first presidential candidate, John C. Fremont, in 1856. Well, nonetheless, the Kansas-Nebraska Act passes, which means slavery could possibly expand into new areas. This ignites a firestorm, and Kansas becomes a battleground as free soil proponents rush in from the north and slavery advocates rush in from Missouri. Western Missouri becomes a staging ground for pro-slavery Southerners and are pejoratively called bushwhackers. Free soil farmers from the north are called Jayhawkers. Kansas becomes bleeding Kansas. Could be said, the Civil War starts in Kansas in the late 1850s. On the James family farm, Zerelda is busy shaping her boys to be the next generation of pro-Confederate fighters. Here's Jesse James historian, Michael Gooch. She was not a wallflower by any means, very vocal, very outspoken. Don't you take anything from those Yankees, you hear me? It's every man's responsibility to hold on to what they've got. Over the next six years, the James family farm transforms into a Confederate stronghold. On April 12, 1861, the South fires on Fort Sumter and the Civil War formally begins. Frank James is immediately plunged into battle, fighting for the militia in the Confederate Army. But Union troops rout the Confederate forces in Missouri and then occupy Clay County. Here's T.J. Stiles, Andrew Nelson, and Civil War historian Christopher Phillips. The local militia forces began to raid the homes of those suspected of assisting the insurgents and partisans in Clay County. 
And the war quickly took on this savage counterinsurgency guerrilla warfare conflict that can be some of the most savage warfare of all. The southern sympathizers in this area could easily be taken out, lynched in their own yards. Their houses were burned on a regular basis, livestock confiscated by the Union authorities, and it became an eye for an eye. It was so bad that uh, one Union commander actually ordered the depopulation of four entire counties of western Missouri. Everyone had to leave, and then their homes were burned. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story of Jesse James and, of course, pre-Civil War America. This is Our American Stories. Jesse don't know much, but he's learning fast. Ain't seen a man take to it like young Jesse has. And we're listening to Johnny Cash singing Six Guns Shooting. When we last left off with the inevitable approaching Civil War, Jesse James' brother Frank has joined a southern guerrilla band of bushwhackers, and the James family's hotly contested border state of Missouri is being flooded by both Union and Confederate sympathizers. Let's return to Roger McGrath. Here on Our American Stories, we continue with the story of Jesse James. Here's Jesse James' biographer, Dan Marcoux. Union militia in the area started looking for these bushwhackers. Zeralda had told everyone that Frank was one of them. 15-year-old Jesse is out plowing in a field when northern soldiers come looking for Frank. Go for your brother, Frank. I don't know where he is. I believe you do, you little rebel son. Hang Frank's respected stepfather, Dr. Reuben Samuel, to a tree. Ruben! Right in front of Zerelda and Jesse. Until Reuben finally gives up Frank's location. It's this violent experience that will push Jesse to join his brother in the spring of 1864. To be treated like the Jameses were treated, demanded that vengeance be taken, or you could not hold your head up as a man. In Missouri, vengeance is best got riding with one of the dozens of Confederate guerrilla bands. In the company of these men, who operate outside the rules of war, Jesse James will be schooled in the art of ambushing, violence, and terror. There are no papers to sign, no uniforms, no government-issue firearms. Jesse simply follows creeks and hog trails into the darkness of the Missouri woods where the Confederate guerrillas make camp. Most notorious leader of these Confederate guerrilla bands is Quantrill's Raiders, commanded by William Quantrill. Here's Mark Gardner, author of Shot All to Hell, Jesse James, The Northfield Raid, and the Wild West's greatest escape. Quantrill's Raiders were guerrilla fighters fighting for the South. They didn't necessarily fight in traditional ways, and the way they fought could often be very savage, very violent, and their targets could be civilians as well as military. By 1863, Frank James is riding with Quantrill 
And a year later, so too is 17-year-old Jesse. Quantrell's band raid, loot, burn, and kill. Their main targets are the railroads, the lifeblood of the Union advance. One of Quantrell's lieutenants, Bloody Bill Anderson, said to Jesse, not to have any beard, he is the keenest and cleanest fighter in the command. Well, during the summer of 1864, Jesse is shot in the chest. But within a month, he's back in the saddle. And he participates in a train hijacking led by Bloody Bill at Centralia, Missouri. Instead of capturing supplies, they find something even more valuable. Here's Civil War historian Donald Frazier. This train has aboard a number of Union forces and home guards that are on their way home. And they're unarmed. They really pose no threat, but they've now fallen to Bloody Bill Anderson and his band. All you Yankees are gonna die like dogs! Bloody Bill's guerrillas kill four civilians and 22 Union soldiers. Bloody Bill wasn't afraid to send a message. That could be pretty brutal. Confederates justifiably argue the massacres are in response to Union atrocities in Missouri. Jesse is shot in the chest a second time, and shortly thereafter learns of Lee's surrender to Grant at Appomattox in April 1865. After four years of bloody fighting, though, he has no intention of surrendering. For Jesse James, this is not an end of his conflict. This is the end of someone else's conflict. Not Jesse James's conflict, not Frank James's conflict. Their conflict isn't over. It's still going on. Jesse James returns home to his deeply divided border state of Missouri. Here's Old West historian Jeff Morey and David Eisenbach. After the Civil War, the South was hellacious. It had been ruined. And there was a great deal of resentment uh, of Northern authority, of federal authority. Missouri is one of these states that stuck with the Union during the Civil War, but had large sectors of the population that wanted to go with the South in the first place. So you had Missourians fighting Missourians. It's in this incredibly volatile, literally brother against brother world that we get Jesse James. Jesse discovers the war has not only torn apart his homeland, it's left his family with nothing. With Northern Reconstructionists in power across Missouri, Jesse and his brother Frank join forces with their cousins, the brothers Cole, Jim, and Bob Younger, who share their fierce hatred for Yankees. The Youngers also served under Quantrell and Bloody Bill and ended up losing their father and family home to the Union. Here's Old West historian Marcus Huff. The James and the Youngers had known each other well before the Civil War. Uh, they honed that relationship. They realized the potential they had as a fighting force. What do you reckon's next force? Jesse decides the best way to express his hatred for the North is to go after Northern wealth. They had to do something to strike back against federal authority and everything they saw as being oppressors in their life. They looked at themselves as freedom fighters and tried to strike a blow for Southern manhood and Southern honor and Southern virtue. 
Having converted to the now worthless Confederate money, there's very little United States currency left in the South. Most of the money held in the banks is coming in from Reconstructionists investing in reunion. Jesse James' decision, therefore, to rob banks is as much political as it is criminal. Go. The gang's first heist is also the first daylight bank robbery in American history during peacetime. Everything in your vault. It occurs at 2 p.m. in Liberty, Missouri, on a cold, snowy day on February 13, 1866. The bank is owned by Republican former militia officers who recently conducted the first Republican Party rally in Clay County's history. The James Younger Gang hits the jackpot with a sum equal to nearly $900,000 in today's money. And the bank is now known as the Jesse James Bank Museum. Rob a bank, get it named for you. Four months later, in Jackson County, Missouri, the gang frees two jailed members of Quantrill's Raiders, killing the jailer in their effort. That revolver shot is somewhat of a release. Jesse refused to forget. A lot of his makeup was revenge. Come on, Jesse, we gotta go. Jesse, come on, come on! Get, boys, get! Now, the railroads are established by the Union during the war. And the, the railroad is a symbol of northern power and, and progress and a tool to rebuild the country and its wealth. The Pinkerton National Detective Agency, headquartered in Chicago, is hired to guard the cargo of railroads. For Jesse and Frank, the trains are a perfect target. The Pinkertons were essentially the first real detective agency, almost the precursor of an FBI. And their role was to essentially run down criminals. Boy, now put your back into it. Jesse's first train robbery comes in 1873 near Council Bluffs, Iowa. Jesse and company pull a rail out of place, and the train's engineer, John Rafferty, sees it move as the gang tugs on a rope attached to the rail. He immediately reverses the control lever. He saves the train, but he and the locomotive flip off the track and he dies. Jesse and the boys get some 2,000 from the train safe, not the great haul they were expecting, and decide to rob the passengers also. Then waving their hats and shouting farewell, the boys gallop off. Evidently feeling bad about robbing the passengers. Ladies and gentlemen. In their next train robbery, the James gang examine the hands of each male passenger to determine whether he is a working man. According to a passenger, Jesse and the boys say they did not want to rob working men or ladies, but only the money and valuables of the plug hat gentleman. But the train robberies are bad for both the soft-handed businessmen and the callous-handed workers. The railroads do not want robbers stopping their train. They don't want robbers terrifying their passengers. It's bad for business. In fact, there was one railroad passenger who said, I don't care if it costs me $500. I'm not riding a train through Missouri. I'll go, I'll go around through Iowa or, or Minnesota or whatever, but I'm not going to take a train through the state of Missouri. And when we come back, more of the life of Jesse James.
For too long now I've been at this game a Riding like hell through the wind and rain Robbing bankers and a Pullman car This is Our American Stories. We're listening to Levon Helm singing One More Shot from the 1980 country music concept album The Legend of Jesse James. We last left off with the James Younger Gang wreaking havoc on the train industry. Let's pick up from there. Here's Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. News of the James Brothers holdup spreads quickly. The robbery is a blow to the railroads and embarrasses the Pinkertons. Alan Pinkerton, their founder, who had been a spy for the Union during the Civil War, takes it personally upon himself to bring Jesse to justice. In Kansas City, the name Jesse James catches the eye of a former Confederate major turned newspaper editor who is trying mightily to inspire the Confederate wing of the Democratic Party to jump back into the fight. John Newman Edwards was probably the most hardcore of Confederates. And in his opinion, Southerners had been outlawed, disenfranchised by the North. Edwards is a bit of an alcoholic. He's disappointed. He is uh, an unrepentant rebel. And if there was ever a minister of propaganda for the Southern rebels and the outlaws that followed the Civil War, it was John Newman Edwards. In the eyes of John Newman Edwards, Jesse James has achieved hero status. He continues writing about Jesse and those writing with him in a similar vein until his death in 1889. For Edwards and many other Southerners, this is not only about Jesse and other Confederate guerrillas, but about the lost cause of the Old South. Edwards, he wanted to see these downtrodden Confederates take their political future into their own hands. And he thought the James Gang would inspire them. And that's why he started writing positive reports. He made them the legends that they were. In Edwards' fanciful telling, Jesse's religious, kind to women, children, and animals, saves poor widows from foreclosure. Well, he is America's Robin Hood. Thanks to John Newman Edwards and the power of the press, Jesse James is no longer seen as a criminal, but as a folk hero for the South. Here's Jesse James scholar, Kathy Jackson. If you're going to be an outlaw, what better way to escape the law and get people to help you than to have them believe that you are doing it for them, for a greater good. Jesse partners with Edwards and continues his robbing spree, targeting Northern wealth Newspaper readers across the country buy into the Robin Hood myth, but not the Pinkertons. Although Governor Silas Woodson issues a $2,000 reward for the James brothers, the biggest threat to Jesse's life comes from the private sector. Alan Pinkerton, who's made an art of reconnaissance and infiltration, sends his ambitious 26-year-old undercover agent, Joseph Witcher, into Clay County first thing he did after getting off the train was to go to the sheriff, ask where the James or Samuel farm is. 
He told the sheriff who he was, what he was doing. Sheriff told him, do not go out there. Those boys will kill you. If they don't kill you, the old lady will. He didn't listen. He was later found the next day with four gunshot wounds in his chest and two in his head with a note pinned on his jacket that said, this is what happens to detectives who come looking for the James boys. Alan Pinkerton had never suffered a defeat like this. It became a personal vendetta for him, and he began to undertake the operation on his own expense. A month after murdering Pinkerton, Agent Witcher, Jesse marries his first cousin, Zerelda Z. Mims, named after Jesse's own mother. But it doesn't slow him down. Trains and banks continue to fall victim to his gang at a startling rate. Largest hauls are $30,000 from the Kansas Pacific Railroad and 10000 in cash and valuables from the Tishomingo Savings Bank in Corinth, Mississippi. On a January night in 1875, a Pinkerton raiding party suspecting Jesse is visiting home surrounds the James family farm. Pinkerton knew that the James boys would at some point come to that house. He had men ready, at least eight to 10. Whenever they learned that Jesse and Frank were at that farm, he was gonna send those men in. What are we waiting for? Alan Pinkerton plotted to bring about the demise of the James brothers. The Pinkertons threw a firebomb into the farmhouse in hopes of driving Jesse out. But the only ones home are Jesse's mother, stepfather, and nine-year-old half-brother, Archie. Reuben and Zerelda think it's a firebomb and sweep it into the fireplace. That turns it into an actual bomb. Firebomb explodes and kills Archie and mangles his mother's right hand so bad, it is later amputated. The explosion is heard as far away as three miles. John Newman Edwards frames the story of the Pinkerton's raid as a direct attack on the South by a Northern enemy. No one is ever brought to trial for the murder of Jesse's half-brother, which again gives Jesse a reason to seek his own justice. If the law is not going to bring these guys to justice, then Jesse's going to do what he can. After the botched raid, Alan Pinkerton's detective agency is forced to back away from their more aggressive tactics. Jesse and Frank hide out in Nashville. In the summer, Z gives birth to Jesse's son, Jesse Edwards James. 1876 looks like it could be a banner year for Jesse. He opens his summer campaign with a $15,000 haul of cash from the Missouri Pacific Railroad. Then Bill Chadwell, a James gang member from Minnesota, suggests they rob what he thinks will be an easy mark in his home state, deep in Northern Territory. The suggestion is debated within the gang, but finally it's decided to head 400 miles north after Bob Younger informs the boys of a major depositor at First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota. 
Here's Reconstructionist historian Eric Foner. You can rob a bank in Missouri. Why do you have to go hundreds of miles away to rob a bank? They got plenty of banks. Because he had heard that the Reconstruction governor of Mississippi, Adelbert Ames, had relatives up in Northfield, and a lot of his money was in this bank. And James decided, we're going to go up there, we're going to rob that bank to take the money of the Reconstruction governor of Mississippi. On September 7th, 1876, the James Younger Gang approaches the First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota, just 45 miles south of Minneapolis. But with their long coats and impressive sidearms, the Missouri boys stand out among the mostly farming folk, many of them Swedish immigrants. Move! We intend to rob this here bank! Who's the cashier? You will bet safe now. And you're listening to the story of Jesse James. And by the way, what a job Roger McGrath does on all of these. To hear more of what we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter. We'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. When we come back, the terrific final chapter in this remarkable story. This is Our American Stories. Levon Helm again. And what a singer, by the way. Let's continue where we last left off in this remarkable story of Jesse James. This is Our American Stories. The James Younger Gang have just entered the First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota. Here's Roger McGrath with the finale. You will bet safe now. The key to the success for the James Gang has always been speed, quickness. Joseph Lee Haywood, the cashier that day, delayed them. When Joe Haywood, the bank cashier and Civil War veteran, won't open the vault, Jesse James loses his temper and shoots him in the head. Clear the streets! Jesse's men are firing off their guns, telling people to get back. This is kind of shock and awe. Uh, in the middle of the street. But these people aren't being shocked, and they're not being awed. Townspeople are starting to fight back. They're coming to protect their bank. By now, ordinary citizens, butchers, bakers, barbers, hardware merchants, farmers, and nary a lawman among them, were grabbing guns and giving the outlaws what for. Wielding a rifle from the second floor of a hotel, college student and future physician Henry Wheeler fatally shoots gang member Clell Miller. It's pandemonium. The outlaws are firing revolvers. 
which are pretty inaccurate on horseback. The townspeople have shoulder guns. They're very accurate. These guys are getting shot to pieces on the street. It was a complete disaster for the James gang. And the only thing for them to do is to try to get out of town alive. Hardware merchant Ansel Manning blasts Bill Chadwall into eternity and then shoots Bob Younger's horse out from under him. Younger rolls free of his wounded mount and takes cover behind a staircase. The outlaws return fire, but bullets are coming at them from several directions. Some unarmed citizens throw rocks. After seven minutes of gunfighting, Jesse orders a retreat and the gang splits up. Joseph Lee Haywood, the acting cashier that day, was a thorn in the side to the plans of these robbers. He delayed them. They don't get the money they come for. In fact, the safe was unlocked the whole time. Had they just tried that handle, it would have opened up and revealed about $15,000. The robbery is a complete failure. Now the Minnesotans want justice. More than a 1,000 grab their firearms and form posses and picket lines, triggering the largest manhunt in American history. There are at least a 1,000 men going after these guys. It was instant national news, especially when the James gang was associated with this robbery. Jesse and Frank were Southern boys and murderers. They were hated in Minnesota, and everyone wanted to see them captured and brought to justice. Jesse and Frank go one way, but the youngers are apprehended. This is the ill-fated moment in the career where what had been a successful gang has reached a dead end. Over the course of the next two weeks, all of the James gang are either captured or killed, except for Frank and Jesse. These guys were masters at concealing themselves and getting away. They had to do it all during the Civil War. They were always outnumbered. They always had people chasing them. Northfield was the biggest disaster the Jameses had experienced since the Civil War. They lost men that they had fought with. They both suffered gunshot wounds. But I think in a way, mentally, in some way, they're wounded as well. Frank and Jesse ride a circuitous 500 miles back home to Missouri with just $26.70 to show for their efforts. Frank, he ultimately thought, the way this is going, it's going to be a bullet or a noose for them. But Jesse, he was diehard. After losing every member of his gang, the most wanted man in America goes into hiding over the next several years. Jesse spends his time living under aliases as a family man, now with two children in Missouri, Kentucky, and Kansas. Stay in your seats, do not move. Then in 1879, with his spoils running low and his name out of the press, Jesse returns to action with a new James gang and takes $6,000 from the Chicago and Alton Railroad. At this point, he's just finding somebody that can hold a gun and hold a horse. 
and that hopefully is trustworthy. Jesse plans a job for April 4, 1882 in Platte City, Nebraska. A bank there is stuffed with cash and needs his attention. Two young and newly recruited gang members, Charles and Robert Ford, will go along. Charlie helped Jesse rob the Chicago and Alton Railroad, but Bob has yet to see any action. Jesse needs an extra man because he has uh, a bank robbery planned in Platte City. So he's willing to accept this young Bob Ford, who's Charlie's brother, because Jesse liked Charlie Ford, and, and I'm sure that Charlie vouched for Bob. They were not a ghost of what he'd had before, just common run-of-the-mill backcountry thieves and killers. You don't have the people who were trained, if you will, during the war. America's most wanted outlaw doesn't realize it. It's not the law he should be most afraid of, but his newest gang member, Bob Ford, who is secretly working for Missouri Governor Thomas Crittenden. The governor has posted a $10,000 bounty for Jesse, dead or alive, and Ford is determined to get it. Bob Ford was this media-saturated fan. There's no better way to get close to the object of your admiration than to join his gang, and maybe in some way become a little bit like him. That's the picture of Bob Ford that we have today. Before they leave for Platte City, Jesse and the Ford brothers meet for breakfast at Jesse's home. After enjoying a hearty meal prepared for them by Jesse's wife, C, they retire to the living room to discuss their upcoming job. When Jesse steps up on a chair to straighten a picture, Bob Ford quickly draws his revolver and shoots Jesse through the back of the head. He topples to the floor and dies. America's most notorious outlaw is 34 years old. Bob and Charlie Ford are convicted of murder and sentenced to be hanged. In a matter of days, though, they receive a full pardon from Governor Crittenden. Nonetheless, the same governor fails to reward them with the $10,000 bounty. You know, Jesse James is already a hero to many people. When he's killed, he's now a martyr. And it's the way that he's killed. Had he been captured and tried, and had he been executed, it would have been much different. But this is a collusion between the governor of a state and a gang member who shoots his leader in the back of the head. Two years later, 27-year-old Charlie Ford, suffering from tuberculosis and morphine addicted, shoots himself to death with his own gun. A decade later, Bob Ford, who wasn't celebrated as the hero he thought he should have been, is shot to death by Ed O'Kelly. Jesse reaches incredible new heights in the American imagination as a hero, as a martyr, and as a representative of the defeated South. I grew up in Jesse James' country. When I was a kid, Jesse James was a hero. Now. I see Jesse as a tragic consequence of an awful, awful war, which was a tragic consequence of an awful, awful institution. Here's folk singer Almeida Riddle. I'm sure you've read of Frank and Jesse James. 
Well, my father's grandfather and their father was brothers. I never was ashamed that the James boys were my cousins, but neither was I proud of it. <laughs> Jesse James was a man who killed many men and robbed many express train. And the people all would say for many miles away they were robbed by Frank and Jesse and James. Jesse had a wife to mourn for his life and his children too were brave. But a dirty little coward they called Robert Howard laid Jesse James in his grave. And what storytelling. Great job, as always, by Greg. And my goodness, Roger McGrath, what a star. He's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to all that he's done, all that we do, We have over 800 hours of storytelling up there. You're on a long trip? Download it all. You can get us on iTunes, too. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, the story of Jesse James, the story of the Civil War in a way in a divided country, here on Our American Stories.